It's good to be together. It's good to have Thanksgiving. It's good to have a vision that comes around this time of the year. While he was in the foyer, he said, this is the first day of Advent. And we go, Advent of God among us. And I, 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 was, I was thinking uh, this week, uh, well, actually, I've been thinking a lot about this series. The next four weeks, we're going to uh, try to put ourselves in the shoes of the first disciples and maybe pick up something from the, the arc of the story that they go back to in order to try to tell us who Jesus was. And it all starts with their affirmation, their belief, deeply held, that Jesus was something, someone, somebody that was far different, more unique than anyone who's ever lived before him. In fact, as you think about the life of Jesus, they are overwhelmed, I guess is the best way to put it, by something that happened that they had a hard time understanding, explaining, and accepting. Most of us don't realize the story of Jesus in the four Gospels is written by people who are actually looking back on his death, writing as if he were still alive. In fact, more alive than he was when he was living with them. Fuller, richer. Something had happened in their lives that they couldn't explain, and, and that is unique in human history. There is no other story written from any group of people about any person who saw someone who was dead and they write his story. They usually write it like the biography of Alexander or Caesar or whoever from the perspective of trying to get you to remember them. The disciples wrote their story from the perspective that they believed the guy that they were writing about was still alive. There is no other story in human history that matches that. People having that perspective. That's amazing. That's just blows you away kind of thing. I mean, that shows you that these guys were either the most intelligent, most creative people who ever lived, these fishermen and untrained and uneducated and non-philosophical people, came up with an original idea that no one has ever had in history. I think it's because they experienced something that no one had ever seen before in human history. And so they had to write about it. It's unique. Something was going on. So where do they go back? Well, they go back to three stories in the Old Testament, and this morning we're going to look at one. They, they, they go back to try to explain the meaning of this man, why they think he's still alive, why they think his life was so important, why things have changed. I, I love that song. That was a great choice. Everything has changed. All of a sudden, now they see things with new eyes, and they go back to read the Old Testament stories, and they see stuff there they never saw before because they had come, encountered a man that, that just blew them away. They saw it different. In fact, he encouraged them to see it different. And as we go back to look at it, 
we're going to look back at the story that they go to first, and that's the story of creation. That's where they go back to. They begin to try to tell you about who Jesus is in the context of of the whole story in the Old Testament. And as they go back to see, they talk about he's where heaven and earth meet. You say, oh, David, where do you get that? Well, here it is. Jesus comes to Jerusalem in the first part of John, Gospel of John. He cleanses the temple. He throws a fit, you might say. He's upset by how they're treating God in, in his own house. And, and they begin, he begins to throw things around and, and get their attention, and they didn't like it. And so they come up to him and say, where do you think you get the authority to do this? Show us. What are you going to show us to prove your authority? Jesus says, well, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. Now, you see a difference in thinking here? Was Jesus talking about a temple made out of stone and rock and had a certain design and it had a holy of holies and so on and so forth? I mean, is that where your mind goes? This temple, 46 years, he's talking about the temple, of, they're talking about the temple of Herod. That's a new thing. If you go back to the temple that they built right after they came back from Babylon out of exile, that's 500 years, not 46 years. And if you go back before that one to Solomon's, what Solomon built, that's almost 1,000 years from when Jesus is on the earth. And if you go back to the tabernacle that precedes the temple as the place where God meets and heaven and earth meets and where you go talk to God, that's what a temple is, by the way. It's not, it's not a place where we go worship like this. Temple is God's house where you go meet God, where heaven and earth meet. You want to see what heaven is and you want to participate in the life of heaven, you go to a temple. And that's what he's talking to them about. Where do you go to meet God? Well, tabernacle doesn't go back far enough because the first temple, God's original temple, is creation. It's not a building at all. And Jesus says it this way. The temple he had spoken about of, uh, spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and words that Jesus had spoken. That should blow your mind. Why did they write down this story? Because they met a man they couldn't explain, who taught them stuff that changed them and blew their lives apart, changed them forever. And he says, my temple. Well, where's that temple? In creation, God was building a temple. Now, I know that we don't think of it in those terms. We, we, think in, we think more in our Western world, we're more into gadgets and how things go together. And if you put silicon in layers and you, put these, and, and you can do remarkable things that are smart in your pocket, you know, smarter than me, because if I lose my phone, I don't know which day I'm supposed to be doing what anymore. And, and I get all these messages from people, and, and, and we try to figure all that out because our minds, since the Enlightenment, has focused on the materials, the forms that we have. 
Now, we will, we will drive our lives with forms even though it destroys our lives. Isn't that true? You just think about the impact that sitting around doing this on your phone all day long has on kids and how they think and the relationships they have with people and their ability to experience their own emotions and they have to be fascinated all the time. It's not just kids, me too. I do it too, man. I'm locked into it now. It's changed, it's changed how I see things. Why? Because I'm fascinated with the toy, even though it has a bad impact. We will drive innovation in our world, even though we have a pollution that comes with that that destroys the life of this planet. What do we care? We got our toy. It goes faster, farther, on a smaller tank of gas, but we still have our toy, right? And as, as you look at that, that's our world. We see things physically. We want to know, is this plastic? What kind of plastic is it? How do you build, you know, how long is it? How deep is it? That's how we think because that's how you verify things. That's not how the Hebrews thought. That's not what the story in Genesis 1 is all about in the Hebrew mind. In the Hebrew mind, it's about functions. They don't think about materials. They're not worried about how far the stars are from here and there and so forth and what's this and what's that. They're talking about an ordered system, the functions in an ordered system. In fact, if it doesn't exist in an ordered system, it has no meaning. You draw meaning in, 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 uh, with people's lives and stuff with how it relates to something else, how it fills this hole, how, how it brings meaning into it. We used to think like that a while back, but we don't much anymore. We don't think functionally. We generally think in terms of forms. And so what's going on when, when you look at and you see different eyes, and you look at Genesis 1. I'm just going to briefly go down through it. They're not, in, in Genesis, Moses is not talking about how things are made. There's, there's no interest whatsoever in atoms and gases and, and distances and, and all that kind of stuff. You don't see any of that. What do you see? You, you see, basically, the demonstration of power and, and, and you start off with light and dark functions. We have to have those, by the way, don't we? What happens if we had 24 hours of sun? How many plants would we grow? What would our crops look like? What would your life look like if you, ever, if you never got some sleep? Just go to Alaska. You'll find out. Do you see it? Light and darkness. He brings functions into the world that are essential to life. The second day he comes, and there's, there's the, the, the separation of the waters above, which is the air and the moisture and so forth, and the waters below, which are the seas. And, and, and you have function again. You have a separation. And then you have the story of, of, of the dry land coming forth, and you have the story of seed, and, and you have all of that's required to have life. And how it all relates to each other. And that you have to have the water in order to keep the dry land wet so that the seeds can grow. I mean, you see how the function goes together? It's functional. 
And the, one of the reasons I think it's functional is day one, two, three is repeated in four, five, six. It's not one, two, one to six. It's one, two, three, do over, four, five, six. Because four, five, six comes along and tells you about the functionaries that are within this system. You say, oh, David, where'd you get that? Well, look at it. The first thing that happens is you have the sun and the moon, and it says that's given to us so that we have sacred time. We have, we have days and nights, and, and that we have years, and we have seasons, and, and that we have the things that we, we need in order for life to thrive in God's presence. It's all there. And you have, in day five, you have the, the fish in the sea and the birds in the air. What's that? God populates those two frames that are in there in day two. The water above and the water below. And he populates it with fish and birds. And he tells them to multiply and fill the earth and be fruitful. They have a function. There's something they're supposed to be doing. And then he comes to day six. And what you have is the dry ground. It came forth on day three. And now it's populated with animals. You know, this is one of the few. There's only one other story that we know about in creation stories in any culture in the ancient world that even mentions animals. And they're insects. Hebrews look at it and say, this is life. This is life. God put it all together. He created it all together. Why? Because he's building his temple. He's building the place where heaven and earth meet. Life is supposed to be where God and people are together living in this vision of peacefulness. That's what it sets up in the first six, in those six days. Because at the end of the sixth day, he brings forth man and woman. And he says he makes them what? In his image. You know that's the last thing you do when you build a temple in the ancient Near East? You bring in the image of the God. Now you think about this for a minute. In this story, you are God's image in God's temple. You. Each one of you. No graven images. No animal images. There's something unique about you as a human being that God has made you in such a way that you're geared in order to reflect into our world God's life and reflect our world back into praise to God. Where does heaven and earth meet? Jesus says, in my body. Because my body is a temple. And Paul says, you are God, you are Christ's body. Doesn't he? In Ephesians chapter 2. Where does heaven and earth meet? It doesn't make any difference if you think it meets in a stone building because you're wrong. It meets in life. It meets in life. God has a vision of what life is supposed to be about and how he made it. When you drop down to Genesis chapter 8, you get the story of the flood. And at the end of that story, as the life comes back on the earth, God says this, As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. 
He just retold you the story of Genesis 1 creation in a little poem so that you'd never forget that you live in an ordered, functional world that has a purpose to it. And even though God decided that he was going to wash it and destroy it, restart, have a new creation, he still says those things are still true. Wow. Changes your mind, doesn't it? You live in God's temple and you're God's image. Changes my vocation. It changes how I see myself. It changes a lot. In fact, that's why the psalmist writes what he writes in Psalms 8. He says, when, you, when I consider the heavens and the work of your fingers, this moon and stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and animals and wild birds in the sky and the fish in the sea that swim in the path of the sea. He just retold the creation story right there, didn't he? That's not an accident. Why? Because the psalmist is trying to tell you who you are as a person in God's system. You have a, a, a job. You have a place. You have a function. And that function is to be the place where God's will is done. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, didn't he? What did he say? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You are the place that you're praying for God to meet heaven and earth come together. That changes everything about your life. Everything changes when you get that idea solely in your heart everything changes because your life becomes something different it becomes something deeper you say ah, David I'm still not convinced well look at the psalmist in Psalm 132 he said let us go to this his dwelling place let us worship at his footstool saying arise Lord and come to your resting place you and the ark of your might may your priests be clothed with your righteousness may your faithful people sing for joy I'm saying resting place what did God do on the seventh day what did he do he rested you say oh God was exhausted it just took everything out of him in order to build this little planet that's so insignificant and all these little people that are so insignificant compared to the rest of the cosmos that you 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 wouldn't even find us we, we would be like an atom in your in 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 the smallest part of your brain, right? In relationship to what God has made. Now, I'm saying resting place. What did he do? It says he rested from his work. That's what it says, right? Sabbath. What's going on? It just means he changed roles. He changed his functions. He's no longer creating now he is in his temple with his creation around him. 
And the work that he does now is to sustain and direct and bring life back. And he tries that over and over and over again. You say, oh, wait a minute. You lost me again. Let me ask you what you think Exodus is all about. You see, you have people in the garden who choose to focus on one part of the creation because they think they can get what they want by focusing on the one part. And the snake is the one who tells them. And it's not an accident that one of the chief gods in Egypt is a snake. And one of the chief gods in Babylon is a snake. One of them's named Mot, the other one's named Tiamat. And they are chaos. And they are the ones who promise to bring everything together. And we would like to have one of those in our pocket, wouldn't we? When, when your life gets chaotic and everything seems like it's falling apart, wouldn't you like to bring out a little God and shake it and say, hey, let's get it all back together here. I've got a problem. You need to fix it. God, if you don't fix my problem, you're not really God. You're not working hard enough. Ever felt that way? That's why we do that. <laughs> it's an idol. It's an attempt to control God for our benefit. But, but that's where they were going. That's what they were doing. And it's not an accident that they've got a snake in the story. As you, you begin to, to hear what's lost when they choose that one part of creation rather than the presence of the creator, your resting place, what is the rest? It's God's presence. It's where he comes and he is. In Revelation, you see it as a throne room. In other stories, Ezekiel, you see it as a throne room. In Isaiah, you see it as a throne room. You come into God's presence. Why? Because he built us in his image in order to live in his presence. That's where real life is. And our lives are screwed up and messed up and hurtful and suffering because we chose to not live in his presence. We chose to tear down the temple, build our own temple, so we'd have better controls. How's that working for you? Not working very good, is it? And so as you look at that, what God has offered us, what's going on in Exodus? He's gone after his people. In order to bring new life, new creation. You have a story of creation, you have a story of slavery, and then you have a story of new creation and freedom and going into the wilderness. Why are they going into the wilderness? Because it says God will be with them. They're going to learn how to be in God's presence in the wilderness where they don't have any distractions. You think about that for a minute. If you really want to know God, he might take you to a place where you have no idea of what's going on around you because you're so focused on the pain and hurt in your life that you're looking for something that's bigger than you. That's what the wilderness is. It takes away all of our props. It takes away all of our easy answers. It puts us in an isolated desert place where we have to focus on that relationship between us and God. 
And so he comes to them and he takes them out into the wilderness. See, we're not this. What's he doing? He's trying to restore that lost part of creation, that connection, that life that they have. And it says, one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. It starts in Exodus 32. God comes to Moses and he says, I've seen these people and they are stiff-necked. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and I may destroy them and then I will make you into a great nation. So he comes to Moses and he says, I'm fed up with these guys. I already tried the flood event. Let's just burn these guys up and start all over again because they're not getting it. And you go, wow, what a story. Is God really someone that we can argue with and, and go nose to nose and say, God, yes, he wants relationship. He wants an honest relationship from honest hearts. We can cry out to God all of our anger and all of our pain because this is exactly what Moses does. He says, Moses says, no, God, turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I mean, I didn't promise these people. You promised these people. That's Moses' argument. God, you're going to break your own promise. Man, that would take a lot, wouldn't it, to go into a prayer with God and say, God, you promised that you're breaking your promise. Wow, what a relationship. I will have your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance. That was God's promise. And then down in chapter 33 and 34, he says, God comes back. Moses wins the argument. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. Talk about some honesty. Wow. God says, I can't go with you because, uh, you know, you're like a two-year-old child and I'm having a hard time. I don't do two-year-olds very well or whatever. Obnoxious people. Your boss at work. I don't care. You pick, pick the one. Okay? And, and he says... I would destroy you. I've almost done it already. You, you, you won the argument. I, I started to destroy them, and now I'm not going to destroy them. But, but, but I can't go through the wilderness with them. And Moses says, if you're pleased with me, if you're going to build me a, 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 a nation like you promised Abraham, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. Moses says, God, these are not my people. These are your people. If you wipe them out, what have you got left? The Lord said, my presence will go with you. It says he relented, changed his mind. And I will give you rest, Moses said. If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased unless you go with us? What else will distinguish your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? That's what God wants. That's what Jesus is talking about with these priests. The temple is my body. What is he talking about? If you want to be in the presence of God, just listen to what I'm trying to tell you. Follow what I'm trying to show you. That's where you'll find God. That's what he tells Moses. And Moses says, 
God, if your presence doesn't go up with us, if, if, if we can't live in your presence, life's not worth living. We'll just stay right here because we know you're here. We'll stay at the mountain. We, we don't need a city. We don't need all of that stuff. We'll just be right here. Isn't that Wow. That's how you feel when you find God, by the way. You don't want to leave his presence. Ever. Somehow we wander away like sheep going astray, but we don't want to do that. It's a spirit life. What, what, what's the point of this? When God created his world, his plan was for people, human beings, to be the place where heaven and earth come together in his presence. That's our role. That's our vocation. That's what he wants to restore. That's what he's trying to restore in Exodus 32. Do you see that when Jesus comes, there's an Exodus story in the New Testament as well? Jesus is doing new creation. You say, well, wait a minute. I thought Christianity was about getting baptized and going to heaven when you die and and we'll all have angels' wings, and we'll have little cherubs around us and little harps, and we'll spend the eternity singing songs. Biggest lie ever made. That's Plato being Christianized. You escape life by getting rid of your body and becoming only spirit. And God says, no, you don't got the plan. The plan is for your life to be spirit and body together. Where life prospers, you are an embodied spirit. That's who you are. And what gets us fouled up is that we either tilt to one side or the other of that, and that causes all kinds of problems. What Jesus is telling them is life is in the presence of God when he brings those back together. That's why it's so important for us to understand the role of the Spirit because the Spirit of God in you is bringing the body and the life of Spirit back together. That's what's going on. That's what's supposed to happen. There's a new exodus that Jesus is making a difference in the here and now. Our lives, the little things are lives. Oh, I skipped over this one. Well, we can put it here. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. Jesus comes, and what's his name? Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. That's why I started today with the picture of the Joseph and Mary and the child with God is here. God is with us. He shows us God's nature and our nature at the same time. He shows us God's life and his life that he wants in us at the same time. He didn't just give us words None of us would have read it anyway. How many of you guys don't read the instructions until you can't get it together? Yeah, 
That's why he can't just give us words. He comes and gives us life. He leads a new exodus. He leads a new creation. And that goes all the way through, folks. Goes all the way through. That's where we're headed, by the way. Heaven's not an up there kind of thing. It's a down here kind of thing. In Revelation, where does heaven and earth meet? On the earth. It comes down. And, and when it's described, how's it described? It's this huge golden cube. You go, why in the world? Cube? That doesn't make any sense. I mean, 1,400 miles cube. From here to Los Angeles on one side. Cube. That tall, too. 1,400 miles in space. The air gets a little thin at 1,400 miles in space. What's going on? Guess what? When you look in the original temple of Solomon and the one in Zerubbabel and the one that Herod replaced Zerubbabel's temple with, guess the dimensions of the Holy of Holies. It's a cube. It's a cube. And Revelation is saying, when God comes back, when Jesus comes back, we're going to live in the Holy of Holies, in God's presence. Now, what does that do to your life right now? Does that change how you live today and tomorrow and how you treat each other at home and how you treat people at work and how you treat people that you don't even know and how you treat people who are hurting and how you confront, as Jesus did, those who are arrogant and abusive? Does it give you any kind of clue about the kind of life that God wants us to live? If we're going to live in the Holy of Holies, in his presence, where his footstool is, and guess what his footstool is? The Ark of the Covenant. And so as you look at what he's telling us about our lives, I want you to understand that your life makes a difference. Right now, right here, you have a job. You have a calling. And that calling is to be God's image in God's temple. And that's what they go back to in order to explain what happened in their lives when they looked at an empty tomb after experiencing a cross and they said, this is what Jesus was all about. 